from the Center for European Reform. This is the CEA podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sails. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello and welcome to the CER's podcast. My name is Camino Mortera Martinez. I'm a senior research fellow based in Brussels and the CER's resident Spanish staff. <laughs> in this episode, um, we are going to look back at yesterday's State of the European Union speech. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen followed a tradition established by Jose Manuel Barroso in 2010 and laid down her vision for the next 12 months before the European Parliament. Her address was typically long and covered many topics from health to digitalization to LGBTQ rights to the RT. But her speech revolved around what she and her team consider their biggest achievement so far, and that is Europe's response to the coronavirus pandemic in the form of the recovery fund. She also touched upon a number of topics like Brexit, migration, or the union's response to Belarus um, civil unrest. So to reflect on all this, I'm joined today by our director, Charles Grant, who is in London. Hello to you, Charles. Hi, Camino. And also by our chief economist, Christian Odenhal, who is in Berlin. Hello, Christian. Hey, Camino. Well, okay, let's dive in. Um, Charles, von der Leyen opened her speech by saying, and I quote, this was the moment for Europe to lead the way from fragility to a new vitality. She also talked about Europe leading the way on carbon neutrality. Is, is the Commission president maybe being a little bit too optimistic here? Can Europe, with you know its soft power and its softly spoken leaders, steer a world of strongmen in the shape of Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping or Donald Trump? Well, um, she did say quite a lot about foreign policy in her speech, and she's not very happy with the way the world is going, all these strongmen you refer to who don't like the EU very much. But she, she stuck to the issue of European values. I mean, a lot of what she said was declaratory diplomacy, uh, saying what we think, condemning misbehavior and so on. There's not a lot of hard grist you can put a, put under that to, uh, to, to back up what Europe wants to do. Europe doesn't have very many levers in foreign policy, especially in dealing with Russia and China, but it has a few. I mean, she started off by talking about China, where the, she has two sets of complaints. One is the economic complaints, lack of market access for European countries. She's annoyed at the lack of progress on the bilateral investment treaty with China, the lack of reciprocity and the overcapacity of many Chinese industries, which leads to them dumping on European markets. And there the commission does have a few levers. It's developing new rules on state aid for third countries outside the EU, allowing it to take countermeasures. It's trying to review its merger regulations to make it harder for, for Chinese companies unfairly supported by large amounts of state aid about European companies and so on. So she has a, a few... A few a few levers in her box to deal with China on that. But when it, when it comes to human rights, she did say we have to call out China on the Uyghur issue in Xinjiang and the, and the abuse of human rights in Hong Kong. But there the EU has very few levers indeed, she, which is why she did actually mention a couple of possible ways forward. She talked about a European Magnitsky Act that would give a legal framework for the EU to sanction individuals guilty of human rights abuse, whether in China, Russia, Belarus uh, or elsewhere. And she also uh, was quite 
interested in the idea of qualified majority voting on foreign policy, at least when it comes to human rights and sanctions policy. Uh, and um, of course, that's she's not the first person to say that. And the existing rules on foreign policy are essentially unanimity required for all things. But she was implicitly critical of Hungary, which has blocked statements criticizing China on human rights, and implicitly critical of Cyprus and Greece, who are currently holding up sanctions on guilty individuals in Belarus uh, for, for, for complicated reasons to do with what's happening in the Eastern Mediterranean. So she did, she did, was implicitly critical of a couple of other, a couple of, in fact, three member states. And I think, uh, of course, QMV, qualified majority voting, could come into foreign policy uh, without a, a revision of the treaties, but you'd need to use what's called a passerelle clause in the, Lisbon, in, in the Lisbon Treaty, which would require unanimity to activate it. So there's a kind of vicious circle there. I suspect that countries like Hungary and Cyprus might be rather reluctant to allow that use of the passerelle clause, which would introduce majority voting for some parts of foreign policy. But at least she, she said what she thought on that. Speaking of uh, foreign policy, Charles, uh, von der Leyen spoke very clearly about the European Union's support for Russian people. She also took a dig at Vladimir Putin and, and his alleged, alleged penchant for poisoning political rivals. Uh, but the European Union has been really slow in imposing sanctions in Belarus. What can the European Union really do and what do you think it will choose to do? Well, the tragedy of Belarus is the EU has very few levers for influencing events there. It is preparing sanctions on some 17 individuals most guilty of electoral fraud and human rights abuse. As I said a moment ago, these are being held up by Cyprus and Greece because they want sanctions against Turkey, which have not yet happened for another part of the world, the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, but the EU is reluctant to take economic sanctions against Belarus because it worries that they would hurt the people themselves rather than just the bad guys who are doing bad things to, to and abusing human rights. So the, the EU has been a bit slow on Belarus. Um, and I think it raises a bit, the trouble is when, when other countries abuse human rights, there's not a lot the EU can do except for target in the individuals concerned. And as I said, the, the Magnitsky Act that is being prepared may allow it to do so rather better than it does at the moment. She did refer to Russia quite forcefully and with a different tone from her predecessor, Jean-Claude Juncker, who was much softer on Russia and indeed on China than she has been. Mrs. von der Leyen did say there was a pattern of abusive behaviour, Salisbury, Georgia, Ukraine, um, and of course Navalny. And she also rather intriguingly made a, an oblique reference saying that no, no pipeline changes that pattern of behaviour which implies that she's critical of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which has been almost finished and will bring, if it is finished, gas from Russia into Europe via Germany. There's a, there, she didn't stick her neck out too much on that because, there's a, as Christian knows very well, there's a big argument in Germany going on as to whether Germany should support the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. But I think um, she certainly uh, is rather like Angela Merkel, to whom she's close. She's taking a rather tougher line, certainly than her predecessor, did and perhaps than some people in Germany do on Russia. So do you think perhaps we'll see toughening uh, line, as you say, uh, not only on Russia, but perhaps on China as well, since one of the criticisms uh, uh, that we had of the previous commission was that they were quite lukewarm when it came to the reaction to both uh, China and Russia? Well, the difficulty in dealing with China is that it's so important for the economic 
uh, economic well-being of many European countries, including Germany, which is responsible for nearly half the EU's exports to China. But it is very hard for the EU to get seriously tough on China. It can criticise it on human rights abuse, but it's not going to take very, very tough measures on China. I don't, I don't think at least Germany itself is sort of caught in the middle on this. It cares about the human rights in China, but wants to have close economic ties. Russia is much less important to the European economy, so it is easier for the Europeans to get tougher on Russia. Also, Russia's behaviour has been more egregious from a European point of view in terms of the Navalny poisoning and propping up Lukashenko's regime in Belarus and so on. So I think that you might expect the EU to get a bit tougher on Russia. But even there, what can they do? She was critical implicitly of Emmanuel Macron. Emmanuel Macron, a year ago, came up with an initiative to build bridges with Russia and to revive the EU's ties to Russia. He was testing out to the Russians to see whether they'd be prepared to come in from the cold. And then she, she basically... Uh, said that, uh, or implied in what she said, without mentioning Macron himself, that attempts to build bridges with Russia couldn't really work given the repeated pattern of misbehaviour by the Russians. So she she basically said we're not going to get closer to Russia because of the way it's behaving, and that is uh, that is that is pretty much with the mainstream of EU thinking at the moment, which she reflects. I don't think one can expect further sanctions against Russia, unless it does more things that are that are really abusive. I don't think that's likely. Um, she did also refer to the Turkey-Greece-Cyprus uh, issues in the eastern Mediterranean. She said that the EU was standing behind Greece and Cyprus in their disputes with Turkey. She also called for everybody to de-escalate. But again, what, what can she do? What can the EU do? The EU itself is not really leading the diplomacy on this. It's France is quite involved backing up Greece. Germany is trying to mediate between Greece and Turkey. The US is involved trying to get everybody to de-escalate. So again, it's not really... The EU itself is playing a leading role. Similarly, she didn't even mention the awful conflict in Libya, which is perhaps a good thing because there the EU is split and Italy's uh, backing the, the UN-backed government of national unity in, in Tripoli, while France is backing Mr Haftar's people, to some degree at least, in the east, as are the Russians. So with the Europe, where the Europeans are divided, as on um, Libya and indeed in, on many Middle Eastern issues, there's not much they can do when it comes to foreign policy. Or at least on Russia and China, they can all take a take, a, take a, a joint position in condemning human rights abuse. Charles, can I, can I interject a question here on, on the Geopolitical Commission? Because this is um, the first um, State of the Union speech and her commission was supposed to be a Geopolitical Commission. Um, can we say that after this speech, um, realism has kicked in and that while the EU will of course, try to get involved in a, a lot of foreign policy um, issues, uh, that, that the tools are too limited? I think that's right, Christian, sadly. I mean, it's a very noble aspiration to say, let's be more geopolitical. But geopolitical implies an ability to play, be a major player in security policy and indeed even military affairs. And of course, the EU can't do that. It's a, it's a trading superpower and it does have the power of its market. It can It can get tough with China on Uh, competition policy, state aid, subsidies, business regulation, and so on, Chinese investment in Europe. It can get tough with China on that. It can't really get tough with China on security. Even if China abuses human rights in Hong Kong, there's really nothing the Europeans can do about it. So I think it's, it's perhaps it's economically geopolitical commission. It can, it could, if it wanted to be, play quite a big role in macroeconomics and and the, the, the organization of economics. As it does, it, she said we want to help reform the World Trade Organization, for example. But when it comes to the power play with people like Putin and Xi Jinping uh, and indeed Donald Trump, there's not a lot the EU itself can do because it's a military pygmy and an economic superpower. And I think that's the reality, which is she, she implicitly recognized in her speech. She wasn't offering to or claiming she could solve 
many of these problems itself. The member states obviously can, and France and Germany uh, are, are military powers in their own right, as is Italy and some other countries. So they, they can do things militarily, but the commission itself cannot, although it's, of course, playing a bigger role in defence than it used to. It's, it's now taking a close interest in the European Defence Fund that's being established, for example, uh, and is trying to do more in defence procurement and defence technology, which is fine, but not in terms of actually deploying force or influencing or being a major geopolitical influencer. I, don't, I think that's, that's a step too far for the time being. Okay, so let's go to uh, a topic uh, where the European Union is actually trying to leverage uh, its uh, trade superpowers, and that's, um, as you as you might have been expected, um, Brexit. And I'm sorry, I know that we have to talk about Brexit, uh, even though von der Leyen herself uh, did not talk much about it. Um, she did go as far as uh, quoting uh, both Margaret Thatcher and John Hume, which for me was um, quite remarkable. Uh, but she did so um, in order to highlight that, uh, you know, uh, the UK has never been one for uh, British international law. And she wanted to highlight the statemanship of, of uh, its leader in the past. So my question to you, Charles, is, is trust in between the European Union and the UK uh, beyond repair? Trust is, has been greatly damaged by the British government's recent initiative to put forward an internal market bill which effectively allows it to overrule uh, or disregard parts of the withdrawal agreement, the treaty it signed with um, with the EU not, not more than a few months ago. And the fact that the British government is just recently saying it's hinting for a, it's going to take a softer line and allow Parliament to uh, approve or in, to, to authorise the, the use of the key clauses in this bill doesn't really reduce the damage that's been done. I mean, certainly there is a huge issue of trust. That said, people on the EU side, including Mrs. von der Leyen, I think still believe a deal is possible, not not likely, but perfectly possible. Mr. Barnier is reported to, the EU's negotiators reportedly saying a deal is possible. I think uh, if, if the EU can give reassurances to the British government on the issues it worries about on the Irish border, i.e. there's not going to be too much bureaucracy on goods going between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and if the, if the British would be willing to compromise on this use state aid, so they agree to set up a system for controlling state aid, not the same as the EU system, but compatible with the EU system, then I think a deal is doable. My own judgment is that the, Boris Johnson probably wants a deal. His recent uh, behaviour has made it harder to achieve a deal, but a deal is still quite plausible. And she didn't say go into the details, of course, but she did find this wonderful quote from Mrs. Thatcher. I'm not quite sure what the context was. Apparently, it was said in 1975. Mrs. Thatcher said, Britain doesn't break treaties. It'd be bad for Britain, bad for relations with the rest of the world, and bad for any future future treaties on trade if Britain broke treaties. And that, that really was a great was a great riposte to what Boris Johnson's government is trying to do. So I think the the commission is, is staying cool and calm and cautious on the issue of Brexit, and it's ready for no deal, but still hopes there could be a deal. Yeah, this story of uh, Britain uh, not breaking treaties was a big was a big thing in Spain um, because some some people in Spain jokingly, of course, um, were reclaiming back Gibraltar in the in the event of uh, you know the UK <laughs> deciding to reach an international treaty on something. Yes, well, well, Spain should just break the break the treaty of Utrecht, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it, Camilla? Then, if if you, if you decide to unilaterally renounce the treaty of Utrecht, then Gibraltar is Spanish. So why not try and do that? Right. <laughs> No, absolutely. Um, okay, let's move to something um, easier, 
which is the economy. <laughs> Christian, <laughs> Christian, let's talk about um, the Hallmark uh, Recovery Fund that, that von der Leyen spent so much time talking about. She took particular pride on Sure, the PEP or PEP program, That's and right. the issuing of green bonds. I'm talking, I'm, I'm saying these uh, things probably not, not very uh, rightly, but it's because I'm not sure I understand them correctly. So if you could explain the jargon to me and to all our non-economist listeners out there, that would be fantastic. No, absolutely. So, um, so the EU indeed put together an impressive array of joint programs in record time, as van der Leyen has, has repeatedly said in, in her speech. Um, and, and, and it contains a lot of elements and acronyms that I'm sure um, are hard to keep up with. So the short program is a long program uh, to support local furlough or short work schemes um, that was agreed before the um, before the recovery fund agreement. The PEP program is a European Central Bank program um, that was very timely and quite aggressive in terms of the amounts of assets that the ECB plans to buy and the wide range of assets that the ECB plans to buy, which um, which stabilized uh, financial markets. And green bonds, of course, are um, bonds uh, used for climate-friendly or green projects. And the EU, but also states such as Germany, uh, will increasingly issue these kinds of green bonds in the hope that it satisfies uh, investor demand for, for green investments. Right. So this looks to me a lot like some of the initiatives that the European Union has struggled to agree in the past. For example, SURE seems to me uh, quite similar to the much-touted European Unemployment Insurance Mechanism. I don't know if that's correct. And uh, the issuing of bonds, uh, which has been on the table for, for many years now, uh, and surely can be taken as a step towards creating inter integration uh, from the, in the economic side. Is this correct or am I misinterpreting all this? No, that's, 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 per that, that's absolutely correct. Um, the SURE program is a loan program, but these loans are very cheap um, with generous uh, funding terms. So it comes very close to a European unemployment reinsurance mechanism. Uh, if you want, and and the joint bonds for the for the recovery fund, um, that's a huge step that the EU takes on uh, debt collectively, um, and um, also entails explicit transfers from the rich to the poor, uh, which go beyond the usual transfers of the EU budget. So these are all indeed very impressive steps towards more integration, on which we have been working on intellectually before as Europeans, I guess. But there was never the political will uh, to put those into practice. And I think that, that this uh, pandemic and this unique crisis uh, uh, forced uh, politicians to take a leap of faith here. Um, the question is, of course, how permanent those will be. Right. So, so she was right in being proud of, of, of that achievement. But then, as you say, uh, let's see what happens to it. And, and one thing that's, uh, that is um, also a big question mark is how are the member states going to spend all this money? And uh, von der Leyen said that uh, the Commission intends to uh, use to, to make member states spend this money to make their economies more resilient, but also obviously uh, greener and more digital uh, somehow. Uh, but I, I see a risk of pork barrel spending here. Do you agree with me or am I exaggerating? 
No, I think I think that's that's by far the biggest risk. Um, and 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 to to some extent, um, this this is this is programmed into this uh, into this recovery fund because we are asking the recovery funds and uh, to do a lot of things at the same time. So you 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 said rightly to make the economies more resilient, but also greener and more digital. Um, then there is the demand that the money should be spent fast, right? Rather than later in 2025 when most of the recovery has already happened. And so we, we are putting a lot of expectations on this recovery fund and, 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 and actually competing demands. Um, and now member states need to uh, put forward um, their own investment and reform plans. And that is an opportunity for countries to tackle big transformations, right? Think about public transport or renewable energy or the education system, fast broadband, you name it. Um, but of course, when so much money is on the table, um, there will be a lot of competing demands and lobbying for specific projects or sectors. And that will be very tough. I just remember when you know a lot of people were saying, well, Germany, please invest more. And the Germans were saying, well, we would like to, but we can't so fast because we don't have the institutional capacity at the moment. Um, and this will be now you know, a, a European scale uh, of that same problem. Uh, do we have the means to, and uh, the institutional capacity to spend so much money so fast in ideally a green and digital, uh, for the green digital transformation? Um, and on top of all of that comes what is the governance of this, right? Who decides in the end um, w which plans are worth pursuing, which are not? In fact, we already see now that some countries, Germany and France included, are already sort of spending the money that they have not even received, right? They're basically saying, yeah, we're going to do this and that. And we are already starting to spend it. Um, and, and that's sort of preempting any sort of European decision on that. And if they get through with, with, uh, with something like that, then it's very hard for the commission to, you know, criticize plans that maybe Italy or Greece put forth. So spending this well is very, very difficult. And that means that this Hamiltonian opportunity of this fund, right, that it be made permanent in the next EU budget in the future is indeed in danger if we don't spend this well. If I could step in for a minute, uh, Christian, uh, it's, it's one of the most uh, important messages I think Mrs. von der Leyen was trying to get across is that, as you rightly say, a lot of the fund has to be spent on green issues. She said uh, she wants 37% of the money of, of the recovery fund spent on the European Green Deal, and she wants 30% of the money to be raised through bond issues to be in the form of green bonds. She's also talking a lot about uh, border carbon adjustment mechanisms to ensure that uh, that we don't we don't export our pollution to other countries and other parts of the world. I just I wonder, Christian, more generally, as an economist, I mean, is it possible as when when Mrs. von der Leyen says that Europe should cut its greenhouse gas emissions by fifty five percent by twenty thirty, which was one of the new things in her speech compared to where they were in nineteen ninety, a fifty five percent cut in greenhouse gas emissions is is that easy to do? Will how much poorer will we have to be if we cut emissions by 55%? And how much will that damage the competitiveness of European industry if other parts of the world, like China and India and indeed America, choose not to cut their greenhouse and gas emissions by so much? So um, it's, a, it's a tricky question. I think if, if we look at, at, the, at the past decades, we can see that we are getting richer while lowering the amount of carbon that we emit per unit of GDP that we produce. So it is quite perfectly possible to become richer over time while at the same time reducing your carbon footprint. Um, so this decoupling has already started. Um, and I think if, 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 it, is, if it is based on, on, um, on investment and innovation, 
um, we can make quite a few steps in that direction uh, uh, still. Um, 55% until 2030 is quite ambitious and we are, uh, we are not on track uh, for this target. So th there, must be, there must be a lot of additional efforts uh, to, to reduce carbon emissions. I think one of the most important aspects politically um, internally is to make sure that this transition is a just transition and that, that, the, that the poorer parts of the population are not paying the price and are not taking, taking a hard, the hardest hit. And I think that is one of the major challenges um, internally. Um, when it comes to the comparison with, with China, India and the US, um, if they are not following suit, then yes, that's, that's a big issue, but mostly for the climate. Right. Because our efforts uh, only go so far, even if we hit our targets until 2030 and indeed become climate neutral by 2050. If the Chinese and, and India and, and the US just are not playing along, then that is not, of not much value. And then indeed, we will, we will be poorer because we have put an effort into trying to decarbonize while at the same time having to suffer with the consequences of climate change. So the border carbon adjustment and, and our diplomatic efforts, um, I think, are, are, are a complement to that. And the border carbon adjustment will be one of those very controversial international uh, policies of the European Union over the, over the next couple of years, um, because it, it, it has the potential um, of being interpreted as protectionist uh, by some or by forcing European um, policies on others. Um, and particularly the reaction of China and the, and the US will set the scene of how, how climate change internationally will be tackled. Let's, let's um, end this uh, round of questions about the economic bit of things uh, with uh, one remark from von der Leyen that, that's, that, that was striking as well, uh, when she said that the European Union is looking to, and I quote here, adapt the bloc's competition framework. Uh, of course, there seems to be a, a long time battle between those who think competition rules should be bent to make Europe more competitive abroad, and that's part of the of the discussion you were having before, uh, how can Europe compete with, with the likes of China or India or, or even the US? Uh, so there are those who think that we need to use uh, competition uh, rules to do that. And those who believe that member states should actually adhere um, to the existing rule book. Uh, what's your take, Christian? What do you think um, this commission is going to be up to when it comes to the whole competition uh, uh, law framework? So I, I think uh, um, the, the, the debate around the competition framework has focused a lot on the issue of whether we want to sort of weaken commission, uh, competition domestically and, and create European champions. Um, I think that is, that is one part of the debate. And there, the signs are a bit worrying um, that we tend to think, okay, if, if we just have big enough European companies, then we can compete better with the, with the, with the US and China. Uh, I'm not quite sure whether that is, that is actually true. Um, von der Leyen did not give a strong hint in any direction, uh, but she did emphasize the competition with, with, with China in particular. Um, and this is what Charles alluded to before. We need to find a way to deal with the competition from state-supported businesses, um, either because they're competing on world markets with European products that do not have the same amount of, of, of subsidies or because they are with that funding are buying European companies. Those, this is one critical area of sort of with the geopolitical element where we need to adapt our competition framework. Um, and the other is, of course, how do we adapt the competition framework to the digital age, especially with regards to platform businesses? 
Um, there are the issues of data portability and so forth. This is a this is a completely different area where we do need to modernize our, our competition uh, uh, policies. But to become more competitive as an economy, you know, this is the economist speaking, we don't need less competition in Europe or shielded national champions, right? We need to invest very boldly in the innovation that we that we want to pursue while preserving competition, because um, innovation and, and and technological progress without very fierce competition is usually not going to be successful, and that's not really easy to do. But I, I think one of the things that I'm I'm interested in because it's not my area is uh, her, her speech also covered um, migration, and I think the refugee camp in Moria is is, is on everybody's mind um, at the moment. So. Um, Camino, you, you followed that part probably of the speech more closely than I have. Um, uh, Council President Charles Michel traveled to Moria um, in the aftermath of the fire that destructed uh, the refugee camp there and said that the EU will not turn a blind eye on migration questions. Um, von der Leyen now um, um, announced a long list of measures to be launched next week. Um, can we expect this commission to solve the migration problem or is that too, too much to ask? That, I think, is the million euros question for all uh, commission administrations, right? They all want to solve uh, the migration problem even before it became a problem that made he headlines. Because, um, as many of you know, because I've been banging uh, about it uh, for, for many years, uh, the European Union's migration and asylum system is broken uh, from uh, its inception. So it's, it hasn't really worked very well. Uh, for the past 30 years. Um, will von der Leyen solve uh, Europe's migration problems? I don't think she will. Um, I think that she talked about so many things that one might think, you know, like she's got a sort of like magic solution uh, to all our, our previous uh, conundrums. Uh, she spoke of closer links between, between asylum and return. She spoke of setting up better legal pathways to Europe, of strengthening borders and of fighting smugglers, which, is, which are all things that we've heard uh, over and over before, and all things that the European Union has actually quietly been doing behind the scenes for some time now. But she didn't speak about what to me is the biggest hurdle that you know, European Union uh, sort of migration and especially asylum uh, policies have, which is Dublin regulation that, as you know, um, establishes that the country of first arrival is the country responsible for the application of, of asylum seekers. Um, this has been uh, the major problem that we've, we've seen ever since 2015, and this is part of the reason why we have so many uh, migrants and refugees uh, or, re or refugees to be are uh, stranded in Greece and at a, at a lesser extent in Italy as well. Um, and I've seen actually interestingly talks uh, about von der Leyen wanting to tear down the entire regulation and replace it with something similar uh, to what we call the Bulgarian Compromise, which is basically, to, su to summarize it, is basically take refugees in or uh, pay for it. Um, I've seen reports of that, and obviously uh, this is uh, all very uh, much hotly anticipated because we have the new migration pact um, coming up next week. As much as I think that the Bulgarian compromise was something, uh, something of a realistic solution or of a realistic way out for some of the problems because it had something for everybody, I remain skeptical 
because if the politics don't change and they haven't changed, and in my view they won't change, it's hard to see how the policies will. There was um, there was one interesting reference um, uh, in, in in her speech to to Schengen, um, in that she connected it to uh, uh, not just with migration and refugees as we're used to from uh, at least even um, economists and, and, and non-experts on migration on, uh, on on refugees but this time she seemed to connect um, Schengen also with uh, with the single market did I get this did I get this right what was what was the can you what was the reference there can you can you explain what that connection was supposed to be no, absolutely. I think she did an amazing thing in reminding people that, you know, when we talk about Schengen, we talk about passport-free travel. And when we talk about uh, free movement of persons or free movement of workers, we are talking about the single market. Um, and both are connected, but they are not the same thing. And I think that's interesting and that's important because uh, the, the previous commission uh, kept on talking about uh, going back to Schengen and all the problems that Schengen had uh, when we had the terrorist attacks and we had uh, several member states uh, closing their borders. And same goes for the refugee crisis. Everybody, everybody was sort of like uh, foretelling uh, Schengen's uh, demise. Uh, and as we've seen, Schengen itself is quite resilient. So we still have a, a passport-free area, we still can travel, and uh, some of the things that, um, you know, like happen were perfectly in line with what the Schengen's border code, so, so the law governing Schengen um, sort of um, allows for. Now, what we saw during the pandemic was a completely different story. It was not about closing borders uh, for security or urgent reasons uh, like that, but it was more about um, uh, not allowing people to enter uh, your country. And that's not a question of, you know, checking a passport, yes or no. It's a question of you coming from Spain or you coming from Italy or you coming from Germany, you cannot uh, enter my territory. And that is a much wider question on, you know, like, has the European Union, uh, you know, like... Uh, the rights uh, to to actually uh, put this this uh, these obstacles to the free movement of, of of persons in this way, and if so, why and how and where are the limits and all these sort of things. So I think that's the interesting question here. Um, and you know, besides the fact that Schengen might have been uh, used uh, a bit in a in a in a in a, in a incorrect way uh, during the pandemic. Uh, but I think, indeed, the interesting question is: um, in times of crisis, are we are we are we you know willing to sacrifice um, the free movement of persons, the free movement of workers, so an integral part of the single market, so so cherished uh, by the European Union that is actually using it uh, a lot in the Brexit negotiations as as a sort of a mantra. So I think that was interesting, and I, I'm I'm eagerly awaiting to see. Uh, what she meant when she said that she they are going to present a, a, a plan for the future of Schengen because uh, we have seen uh, such a plan not even two years ago. And I'm interested to see um, what the Commission is going to do about countries which keep on uh, having sort of like obstacles in place for people moving around uh, with no legal basis whatsoever. Um, I'll be writing about this uh, very soon, so hopefully I will be able to answer some of these questions uh, as well. Very much looking forward to that. Um, Charles, can, 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 you, can you wrap up um, with, with a bit of a, of a view 
of what this State of the Union um, address reveals about the, this commission or the commission in general and its role uh, in the European Union. Does this commission really lead the EU uh, and, and, and how well is it doing on that? Well, I thought it was a cautious speech, in, in a cautious speech, in in a good sense. Uh, there weren't there weren't a lot of radical, dramatic initiatives, other than those on the European Green Deal, which we touched on. I think it's very good not to overpromise. One of the worst things about European politics is EU leaders say we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll do lots of things, and they can't actually deliver. She she's quite careful not to overpromise. I thought, which I respected. Just very very one brief comment I'll make, Christian, is that she, she said almost nothing about the conference on the future of Europe, which a lot of European federalists are looking forward to, some big conference that will revise the treaties, improve the institutions and so on. The European Parliament, to which she spoke when she delivered the address, is very keen on the conference on the future of Europe. The Commission, less so. Most member states, France accepted, less so. And she didn't really talk about it at all, except... Uh, there was just one brief reference to the Conference on the Future of Europe when she said the EU needed more powers on health policy, which is fine, but she's clearly is not, she's not making the Conference on the Future of Europe her priority. I think she's got other, other more, more practical issues she wants to focus on. I think overall it was a confident performance. She's been bolstered by the fact she had a lot of success with the recovery fund, which we've discussed. Uh, this was a, a, an effort put together by the European Commission leading, but also France and Germany played a crucial role getting together to... Uh, push ahead with the recovery fund. And when I think this shows that when France and Germany work together and they work together with the commission, that you can achieve quite a lot and it can actually can lead. And I think this was a great example this year we've seen of commission leadership on the recovery fund and the EU budget backed up by France and Germany playing a very important role, which has um, actually healed the rift that was growing up earlier this year between the North and the South. I mean, they're quite dangerous rifts growing up between the, the Germans who were and the Dutch who were unwilling to of any element of a transfer union and the Italians and the Greeks and other Southerners who wanted elements of a transfer union. And the creation of the recovery fund has essentially healed that rift for now, at least in a rather impressive way and given the commission a lot of self-confidence. I think I'm, I'm, reminded, I'm reminded of the time when I was a journalist in Brussels 30 years ago when Delors was in his heyday. And then Delors got the plan for the euro going and that worked because Delors led, France and Germany backed him and France and Germany worked together very well. That was the time of Helmut Kohl in Germany and Francois Mitterrand in France. And that trio of Delors, Mitterrand and Kohl got things moving and Europe went forward with, and the commission mattered. And we've seen that again, a bit again this year with the, the, the combination of uh, Macron, Merkel and von der Leyen. Of course, Mrs. Merkel won't be around for more than another year. But nevertheless, if France and Germany and the commission can work together, then the EU can achieve quite a lot. Perhaps that's a slightly optimistic note to finish on. Thank you very much, Charles. Um, one of the things we didn't uh, cover was the European Bauhaus, but I don't think we have the, the expertise in-house, but I'm looking forward to uh, seeing what, what comes out of that. Um, this was the CR podcast for this week on uh, von der Leyen's State of the Union speech. I hope you enjoyed it and uh, tune in next, uh, next time. Um, and don't forget to subscribe um, our podcast on whatever podcatcher you're using. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.